0: Hey, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show...
1: She was like, oh, it's almost like women need Machiavelli. And it was like a hundred lights went off in my brain. I was like, that is a great idea.
0: Stacey Vanek-Smith on Machiavelli and Women in the Workplace. Today's episode is a really special one for me because our guest is Stacy Vanek-Smith, who is my friend and also my former co-host at The Indicator from Planet Money, which is the daily economics podcast at NPR. That is a show that Stacy and I actually started together almost four years ago and where she is now the lead host. So you might detect, I hope you'll detect, an easy and a fun rapport that she and I have with each other because... We've done this speaking across from each other in front of a microphone literally hundreds of times together. And our topic for this chat is Stacey's new book called Machiavelli for Women. This is a book that gets into the pragmatic lessons of Machiavelli's famous works uh, that are still relevant for today. And then it shows how those lessons can guide women to overcoming the particular obstacles that they encounter in the workplace. Now, the book does present all kinds of data and evidence and case studies, which is exactly what you'd expect from a longtime economics journalist like Stacy. But what I really enjoyed about the book and about this chat you're about to hear is how much of herself Stacy brings to it, her personality, her intelligence, her humor, and above all her past. She talks a lot about her professional setbacks and disappointments that in the moment left her frustrated sometimes or angry or wounded but which she always learned something from, something that she can now share with the rest of us. And so the book's overall tone is not resentful or embittered, not at all. I would describe it as proactive and kind of aggressively practical. And also, this might be surprising given the subject matter, but it's funny too, and even fun, just like Stacy herself, which I think you'll recognize in this chat that I am so happy I got to have with her. Here it is. Here is where I want to start, which is like with the formative Stacey Vanek-Smith professional experience. It was a bad one, actually. It was when you first started in public radio. You and I have talked about this a lot, but for our listeners who don't know, what happened when you took your first job and when you went out to get a coffee or a drink with two of your colleagues? What happened?
1: Oh, yeah. This was my introduction to some of the workplace issues that would come to um –
0: Plague you for the rest of your professional career.
1: Something like that, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I take I took a job and I had come from journalism school. And so two of my classmates also got a job at the same place. And we were over the moon because it not only was it kind of our first job in journalism. I was so excited to have an actual job in journalism. But it was like with friends. It was so wonderful. And um, we were very excited and we all went out to brunch to sort of celebrate, and it was me and one of my classmates was a white man, and one of my classmates was a woman of color. So we were all out at brunch, and I—I I still, I mean, thirty-five thousand dollars—that was my first starting salary. Yeah, and I did try to negotiate, but I was—I was so excited to be making. I remember being like thirty-five thousand dollars. How am I going <laughs> to spend it <all?" laughs> also, you're employed,
0: also, you are employed. Also, I was
1: employed. Yes, I would, it was. I was thrilled. I was. It was a. It was a, it was a assistant producer job, an entry level job. And so we were all at a, at brunch and um, the man started complaining about the pay. And He was like, the pay is so low. I don't know how anyone can survive off of this. And I was like, I know. And we had all tried to negotiate and none of us had succeeded. And then the guy says, he's like, I mean, $45,000 a year, like you can't really, what can you do with that? And I just remember I can still, it's so visceral. I can still, it's like, I feel my stomach like drop into my feet. I was like, a year. And I looked over at our other friend and her face was just stricken. So I knew that she and I were in the same boat. And so I said, said, no, I know I'm making $35,000 a year too. And she said, I'm making
0: 32,000.
1: And the guy was mortified, of course. I know he kept being like, but we all came from the same class. We have the same position. I don't understand. This shouldn't be. And I didn't negotiate. And it was just, you know, horrible. But it was an interesting introduction into the, into the workplace.
0: And into the wage gap. Because what's interesting about this is that his salary, your salary, and your other colleague's salary, the woman of color, sort of mirrored the national trend. So let's talk about that. What is sort of the, the wage gap right now, the gender wage gap and, and where it stands and how that was reflected in that conversation?
1: So overall, women in total make about $0.80 on the dollar uh, compared to men. Um, When you kind of break that number down, it gets even worse. Uh, For instance, black women make about $0.63 on the dollar. Indigenous and Latina women make about $0.55 on the dollar. So when you break the number down, it's even more troubling. But overall, women, it's about $0.80 on the dollar.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it gets worse for women of color because they're dealing both with, you know, a gender disparity, and also with a racial or an ethnic disparity, too.
1: I mean, it's larger than the gender pay gap. So there is a lot happening within that number. But those, those like numbers have been frozen for like a decade, almost 20 years, but really pretty frozen for a decade, which is really surprising, considering the amount of progress that's been made in other areas.
0: There's another reason that I've thought about this story ever since you first told it to me a few years ago. It's that it had to have poisoned your own kind of relationship with your workplace from the very beginning because you learn that there's something wrong with the way people are getting paid from the beginning. That sort of thing can't help but end up contaminating your view of your own colleagues, you know, the other people you work with, the people that you often have to collaborate with, from the very beginning, it's going to make you suspicious of the workplace. And I guess I'm curious to hear about, like, how that affected your own relationship to your colleagues and to the places you've worked ever since.
1: It definitely affected it. I mean, I think from the beginning, I've had a little bit of a suspicion towards the places where I've worked. And the funny thing is a lot of the places where I've worked are very sort of good places, started on with, you know, a very sort of beautiful um, mission statements and things like that, I think it did give me like a sense of mistrust around salary and how people are valued because to take the story forward, um, so the woman of color actually went to HR. We were two weeks into our jobs, three weeks into our jobs. And she talked to the person at HR about what had happened. She was very concerned. And she said to the person in HR, like, listen, please don't. Say anything about this because I just started my job and this is like my first job, and I don't want to be like a rabble rouser, but you know but what the hell? what's going on. And the next day, the boss called this woman into his office and said, So I hear you think that we have a sexism problem.
0: Oh my yeah, god. Yeah,
1: it, it was interesting. And I think also just talking to people about their work so much and different workplaces and covering the world of finance and banks which are sort of often very notoriously difficult places, (laughs) culture-wise, I think it did color my views of the workplace. I mean, at the same time, I love my work. I love work. I love the people I work with. I love journalists. I love economists. I really love talking to the people I talk to. So at the same time, there was this really deep love of the work that I do and of the workplace and the office and the, like, the camaraderie of the office and those, like, The little ecosystem, it's like a little office family. I love that. But also like a little bit of a cynicism, which may be part of what drew me to Machiavelli, honestly.
0: Yeah. I wanted to start by talking about one of your own experiences as a kind of lead-in to Machiavelli because you got an early taste of the idea that there's a difference between the way we all kind of wish the world was and how it actually is. I mean, that story you told is like, It just illuminates the stark difference between those two things and that was machiavelli's entire project was to get you to see that the world is not what you wish it were in some idealized setting what inspired that choice in the first place as opposed to i don't know rousseau
1: (laughs) (laughs) rousseau for women is going to be the sequel um no the idea actually came from my editor. So I was looking at all this data about women in the workplace, and I was talking this through with her and explaining my frustration and how confusing it was to me that all of this stuff was changing in the economy. Women were going to law school and medical school and business school and higher and higher numbers. More and more women were entering the workforce. And then there were these numbers at the center of the economy, like pay, like executives, like law partners and surgeons. They just seemed so stuck. And she was like, oh, it's almost like women need Machiavelli. And it was like a hundred lights went off in my brain. I was like, that is a great idea. And so I went, I went to a coffee shop that weekend and read the prints. It's very short. It's like 60 pages. And I just sat there in one sitting and read it. And I was completely, I was like, this is it. This is the frame. Because the way he approached, it just seemed like it all it just seemed so
0: all the connections were
1: there. It was so unflinching. It seemed so perfect in all these weird, unexpected ways. And I was like, "This is the thing." Yes, it was. It was like it went from a topic. Um, you know, they always say this in journalism: it's not. It's a. It's a topic, not a story. This is always the <laughs> thing. <laughs> so it was like I had a topic, and then I had, and then Machiavelli gave me the story. It gave me the lens through which to look at all of this and approach approach the problem and the solutions.
0: Tell me about the prince his famous work that you read in that coffee shop and the story behind that speaking of topic not a story what's the story behind <laughs> that
1: <laughs> yes so so the prince was essentially a cover letter a cover letter yes like a
0: job application cover it was letter.
1: a job 100% <laughs> a job application it like even in the very beginning of the prince he writes it to Lorenzo de Medici he wanted that guy to give him a job it did not work <laughs> but that's what it was supposed to do so Machiavelli um, he grew up uh, near Florence. He was Florentine. At that time, it was Italian city states. so Florence was kind of like its own independent little...
0: Little fiefdom. Little
1: fiefdom, yeah. Yeah. And Italy was just in total chaos at the time. The King of France was roving around, taking over this part and that part. The Catholic Church was invading different areas. It had its own little army. There were generals. There were despots. There were a bunch of powerful families. And it was just very bloody. Um, And so Machiavelli... Was from a family. He had like a certain amount of money. He was. But his it wasn't he wasn't from a great family, sort of like from an okay family. Uh, But somehow he got this job, which was pretty much a coup um, as essentially the secretary of state for Florence. And there was like a Florentine council. Florence was like more or less a republic there was a council. And so he was supposed to, he was like a diplomat. They sent him around. He was, he went to France. He went to Rome. Popes knew his name. Kings knew his name. And he was supposed to sort of wheel and deal on behalf of He was a striver. France. And he got this he great job. He was a striver. Yeah, yeah, he was such a striver. He loved his job. He was always galloping around with secret documents. And Florence did not have a lot of money and they had no army. So he was basically negotiating all the time. Just with his like wits, so his powers of observation were very important, and he just like just so clearly loved his work. He wrote a lot of letters to the people he worked with. The people he worked with loved him. He was apparently like kind of the life of the party. Very smart, very charming, just very astute, um, and he loved loved his work. And then Florence got taken over by the Medici family, and they took all of his money away. They took all of his property away, they threw him in jail, they tortured him. It's it's kind of amazing that he lived, actually, that he wasn't killed. And then they ran him out of town. So he was in exile. And he missed his job. He loved that life. He wanted back in the fold. So he wrote the prince as like, kind of like an amuse-bouche of his ideas. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, like he was He was like, here is my philosophy. And he thought it was like, this is the best I've got. And he was hoping that Lorenzo de' Medici would read this. Lorenzo de' Medici would like, took everything from him. I mean, it's really painful at the beginning of The Prince because he's like... You know, I'm unworthy of your greatness, and if you have a second and your amazing schedule to even sure, read he's this. sucking up
0: a little bit. He's, he's he's trying to get back into the good graces this of the people who ran him out of town. On right?
1: power it starts out, he's just groveling to this guy who took everything from him. It's just mortifying when you read it and understand what's going on. Uh, but then he was just he was hoping that Lorenzo would be like, wow, this guy's the real deal. Whatever he was working for the other side, but like we've got to get him on our side. But it didn't work. he I don't even think Lorenzo did read The Prince, but the Catholic Church did and they were horrified and they threatened <laughs> to excommunicate anyone who even bought it. So,
0: and they were horrified because the ideas in it were all about like how to take power, how to keep power, a lot of scheming and things that you now associate with the word Machiavellian. Is that right?
1: Yes. So yeah, the prevailing view before then had been kind of like Cicero, this idea of like humanism, basically just this idea of kind of greatness. Like you want a leader to be great. They should rule ethically. They should be a good person. Like, I don't know if you've ever read Cicero, but um, it's very inspiring. You feel amazing about being a human being, just the infinite possibilities. We're all so godlike and full of promise. And Machiavelli is like, he calls people like fickle, thankless he is a very different As take are, on people, right? Yeah. Um, he
0: tries to describe them realistically, not in these ideal terms.
1: Yes, I mean I think they're both correct, but Machiavelli was just like, listen, and and his it was a practical, it was what he had observed. I mean, when he was nine years old, there was a huge attack on Florence, and he wrote the streets were filled with the parts of men. He was nine. So he had seen tons of violence and chaos and unrest, and he'd also dealt with all these leaders. He knew the drill, and he was really honest. And I think that—I think the thing that makes the prince such a timeless work and makes it such a scandalous work is the same exact thing, because I think he removes morality from the situation. So if I'm looking at the situation with the salaries, right— It's like okay, I'm in a work organization that is paying white men more, women of color less. Okay, I would like to get more money. I know that this white guy's making forty five thousand dollars. How can I get forty five thousand dollars? But instead, of course, I was in an emotional spiral of like injustice and upsetness for a long time, and I think that was correct. Justified, Yeah, yeah. but did I ask for a raise? No, I was just internally, I never asked for a raise actually. I was just internally tortured for years and like resentful and angry. And I think what Machiavelli does that can be very useful is he just removes all of that. It's like, oh, okay, well now he would probably look at it as, oh, look at this great information you now have. You should be earning 10,000 more dollars. Go get yours. Yeah. What's the best way to go about getting it? What's the best way to ask? You know that money's available for the position. You know it's in the salary range what do you do now? That is why it's timeless, because it's so smart. But it's also sort of chilling when you remove morality and emotion from situations, then you end up with advice like, you know, if if you wrong somebody, like if you, you whatever, take a kingdom from them or take a job, that you should probably kill them because then they're just hanging around hating you and that's gonna make <laughs> trouble. Yeah. And then you should probably also kill their family. Like, that's, you know, legitimately chilling advice but i think i think machiavelli's just looking at it very strategically
0: what's effective yeah rather than what's right or wrong yeah yeah
1: what's effective and just kind of looking at things like a chessboard which i think is why it's such a smart work why it's endured all this time but also why it's like associated with you know
0: it's interesting because it's almost evil yeah you write that machiavelli wrote his book for leaders who took power by conquest not for leaders who inherited their power because they kind of had it easy, right? Like, if you inherited your power from your father, the previous king, well, then, like, the people in your country are going to think, well, yeah, that's a legitimate ruler because he was the son of the king or whatever, right? Whereas it's harder to keep your power if you took it by conquest because now you have to establish your legitimacy. And the analogy you draw is that in the modern workplace, the people who have to take leadership positions by conquest, sort of I'm putting that in air quotes, conquest are women. What's behind that analogy? And and how does that sort of apply to the advice uh, that Machiavelli you think would give women in the workplace?
1: So yeah, I was very delighted when I was reading The Prince and discovered The the Conquering Prince. You're exactly right. And Machiavelli writes The Prince for The Conquering Prince. He's like, it's very difficult, it's very tricky. You're new to power. Everybody's kind of looking at you with suspicion. questioning your right to be there, wondering why they should be paying taxes to you and listening to your rules. And that has a lot in common with with women and like people of color and other marginalized workers in the workplace. It's like you might be there and like legally you're not supposed to not be able to get a promotion because, you know, you're a woman or a person of color, or things like that. But there are a lot of people who may be questioning consciously or unconsciously your right to be there is this person really a leader? Can this person really do this job? There's a lot more questions that might not come up if you were just, you know, a white guy with hair.
0: My favorite part of the book was how you really grapple with this issue that what is effective for women in the workplace is not like easy advice to give because sometimes it involves telling women that to be effective in the workplace is to sort of, like, change something about how they would go about their work if they were being totally true to themselves or authentic to themselves. You know, a simple example would be if you work in a place where everybody's wearing the same, I don't know, charcoal gray suit or something. And if you're a woman who wears, who happens to wear, like, bright colors, like your advice is like, well, if you do that, you might be taken less seriously and you might not get promoted. Ditch the
1: tangerine caftan.
0: (laughs) Right. And you really struggle with it because you make the point that you're like, I hate giving this advice. I'm just telling you what works and what the evidence shows. But there is a real sort of grappling, a real kind of compromise that we have to like look at because, again, the world is not the way we wish it were. Maybe we'll get there someday. But right now, this is the stuff that works. And Choose to follow the advice or don't choose to follow it. You at least should know the facts. But you really struggled with this, and it's in the pages of the book. I'm wondering how you feel about it now that, like, the book is out there. How did you process thinking through these issues where you're basically telling women that they have to do things that men don't have to do in the workplace because that is what is effective for women?
1: I mean, it was the hardest part about writing the book, but also I made a decision really early on that I was just going to, be as honest as I could and to try to come up with solutions given the facts that were there because I I myself had read a, I, I'm a big homework person <laughs> and so when I wanted a raise or I wanted a promotion I would read management books and negotiation books and the ones for women are often like very horrifically like you go girl power you know you go in and demand yours and I had tried that and it doesn't spoiler alert, it didn't go well. Uh, And then I tried to just, you know, use the advice that's given to everyone, sort of the generic advice, which I think is often geared towards men in the workplace. That also hadn't worked. And I was so frustrated. And then I was looking. So that was my personal experience. And then looking at these numbers, like the economic data, I was like, something isn't working here. And I wanted to at least be honest about exactly what the research showed and to try to come up with a solution, even if it wasn't a solution that I felt great about. Um, and that was really hard. I mean, some of the some of the advice is very stomach turny to me. For instance, I mean, one of the very small things is like, you know, if you're a woman and you smile in a negotiation, or you emphasize a social connection with the person you're negotiating with, it's it's more likely to go well because people have often negative reactions to women speaking in an assertive way or advocating for themselves. There's people tend to think like, oh, who do you think you are? You're being selfish and grabby. They just tend to have sort of an, a an adverse reaction, even, I think, if they do not mean to.
0: And women are treated differently than men in a situation like that. Men are often um, rewarded for being assertive or for being dominant in a conversation or in a meeting. Women end up being perceived very differently, negatively.
1: Yeah, I mean, if if both you and I go in and ask for a raise, like, let's say we both go in and ask for a $10,000 raise, even if neither of us gets it, or even if we both get it, Chances are you will leave the situation, and they'll be like, "Yeah, you know, good for him. He's asking for himself. This is good. He's like pushing for himself. He Asserted. understands his value. Yeah, like that kind that's of thing. that's good." And and chances are they will be like, "Wow, she's really pushy. Like she's a little," and those feelings, nebulous as they are, and even if it has no material effect on either of us, or you know, we both get our raise, or neither of us get our raise, that. Feeling that sort of negative takeaway can have real effects later on. It's like, who should we put at the head of the project? It's like, well, I don't know. She's a little – like that stuff has real effects. A lot of racism and sexism play out in those sort of nebulous reactions that are unconscious for a lot of people. And so it's it's a tricky situation. I wanted to at least make people aware of it. And one of the most disturbing pieces of advice I got from a, a really brilliant gender researcher, uh, Joan C. Williams. She's a legal scholar and a gender researcher. And she was working in academic law. And it sound, the place she was working, I guess, was just really miserable. She wasn't getting along with anyone. She said she felt like everyone perceived her to be a dragon lady. Her words, not mine.
0: A dragon lady? <laughs>
1: yeah. And so one thing she started doing was wearing more dresses, Her daughter was going through this, like, dress-obsessed phase, which, of course, she was because Joan is this, like, very ardent feminist. So her daughter was, of course, obsessed with dresses. So Joan started wearing dresses to kind of match her daughter and noticed that she was getting a different reaction at work just by sort of, quote-unquote, softening the way she dressed, feminizing the way she dressed. And so she advocated that in her book. She has a great book called What Works for Women at Work. And I was talking with her about it, and I was like, this like really your advice is like wear dresses and she said listen if my book were what should work for women at work it would be really different like yeah. we're dealing with an unfair system you have to understand she's like does this mean you have to wear dresses no but be aware this is an option that you have and i liked i liked that approach i thought it was like if there's something about it, it felt refreshing like someone's going to tell me the truth does this mean i'm going to wear a dress when i ask for when i go in for a negotiation like probably not but maybe, like, if I really need to pay my gas bill or, like, get my kid into some program that, you know, requires money I don't have, then, yeah. But you at know, least it's
0: accurate information about what could work versus, like, right, versus, like, some high-minded peon to, like, you know, leaning in and that kind of thing. Yeah, just,
1: like, go be you, be your authentic self. And, I mean, God, I would love to say that. Like, yes, be your authentic self. Um, I, the world would be such a better place, but... You know, also I we need to get people into leadership. We need to get women and people of color and marginalized workers into leadership positions so they can make decisions and really move the needle on this stuff. Um, You know, that's, of course, where real change happens in policy level at a company level. But individuals have to navigate a really difficult, unfair system like a little salmon swimming upstream like that has to happen before these numbers will move. I think this is why things are stuck. Honestly, I think that's why the state has been stuck for so long.
0: Do you think progress is possible, though? Because I'm wondering if maybe future generations are just going to be better about this precisely because we are learning more and more how these dynamics work, including from books like yours.
1: I definitely think progress is happening. Uh, In the book, I talked with this woman, Dr. Tina Opie. Um, She's a professor of management at Babson College, and she's looked at a lot of these issues. And she said things have changed a lot. But I think there's often a perception maybe that they've changed a little faster than they have. So she, she would have a lot of students, she had a lot of undergrad students come and ask her, what to do, especially said like the female students, like what they should do with their hair. And this is, of course, really loaded. And Tina is a black woman. And she said she's thought about this a lot. And she's written a lot of like done a lot of research on hair and like how to wear it. And she said, you know, it's it's an impossible question in a lot of ways. She's like, so I just tried to be really honest and said, like, that's harmful to people to conform in a way that denies your identity. Um, This happens a lot to like non-binary and trans people too uh where it's basically you're like can you be not you can you sort of deny your identity in order to get a job and then she's like but you need to balance that with like how much do you need this job and the fact that like here's what it makes you more likely to get the job so she said she would just lay this out to her students and that's how she handled it um but i mean there is a real hit like it's not just like oh if you wear a dress whatever i mean there's a real hit to your identity if you're like dressing in a way that doesn't feel like aligned like you. with your gender. Right. Or if you're sort of doing something that sort of denies your race or trying to look less, whatever, and that's really destructive. But then like you also need to earn a living also. It's, it it's really, really hard. It's yeah. really hard.
0: Not that any more were needed, but it is another sign of lingering inequity that so many women and non-binary people and trans people still even have to think about these kinds of things, and men don't. So, for example, there is a deep sexist history behind men telling women that they need to smile more, right? There's a sexist history behind, like, men trying to instruct women on how to wear their hair in the workplace, right? It is still something that's being considered, which is why... A book like this is so relevant, your book, I mean, because we're not at the place where the workplace has changed enough that this is no longer irrelevant.
1: I mean, I did have a couple people say to me when I was researching the book, like, well, don't you think that question's like a little outdated? Aren't aren't we kind of past that? Haven't we kind of solved that? And I was like, well, I would think so. But if you look at the data, like, no, we really haven't. Like, look at the pay gap. Look, CEOs are 80% male, 90% white. The numbers are worse for Fortune 500 companies. So, like, the wealthier the companies get, the whiter and more male they get. No. Like, it seems weirdly dated. Like, it seems like a book that should have come out in, like, 1982. <laughs> <laughs> um, it really, I mean, it really does. But, it, you know, it's still quite relevant. I feel like there's a feeling that we've progressed maybe – further than we actually have. And we have to be realistic about where we actually are.
0: Yeah. I want to make one final point about the topic of authenticity, because it seems to me like we all have multiple authentic selves, right? I mean, I speak differently to my family than I do to my friends in a bar. And I speak differently to my friends in a bar than I do to like my professional colleagues. And I speak differently to my professional colleagues than I do to, you know, a romantic partner or something like that. None of those selves is inauthentic, so to speak. It's just that I'm going to be different in different situations. Everybody's like that. And so this idea of figuring out what your authentic self is in a given context, in a specific workplace context, makes a lot of sense to me. It's just also a really hard problem because there's times when you really want to be able to express yourself in a certain way, but you have to do the work of figuring out whether it's going to actually help you or not, or at least know what the information is, which I sort of see as the goal of this book. Have the information and then make your own choice, right? Is that yes. About, is that about the right depiction here?
1: Yeah. I mean. Yes, exactly. I feel like a lot of it's easy to get stuck in certain situations or not understand why things aren't happening or why you're not moving forward as fast as you want. I mean, this has certainly happened to me in a bunch of moments in my career. And to get unstuck, to have options, to at least see different ways, even if it's a way you don't want to take, there's at least a way. And I think a lot of the things that happen seem so puzzling on the surface. And then the reasons behind them are sometimes not great. But at least if you know them, you can navigate them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There is one area where you think women could, like, bolster their confidence, which is in terms of knowing their own worth. Because that, at least, is a good, healthy starting point from which to start negotiating and starting to figure out what's going to work, you know, inside a professional setting. And it reminds me of another story you tell about yourself in the workplace, which is when you discovered that one of your colleagues who had less experience was making a lot more money, you know, even though you were doing roughly the same job, but you had more experience. But you were making a lot less. And sort of what happened afterwards, you had a really interesting conversation with a friend. Can you tell that story?
1: Yes. This was very interesting because, and I think the thing that was the most upsetting to me was my, co- it was a male colleague and we had the same job. And I found out he was earning quite a bit more, like a lot more, like more than, it was like, I don't know, it was like $20,000 I just want
0: to be clear, this wasn't me. It wasn't Cardiff. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't you,
1: Cardiff. Uh, and I remember some part of me felt like it made sense. Like some part of me felt like, oh, but that's how it should be. And it was so upsetting. And I kept walking myself through the facts. Like, no, I have X years of experience. He has Y years of experience. I produce X amount. He produces X amount. But somehow I was like looking at the situation from the outside. I was like, yeah, you should probably get getting more than me. I don't know. Why I thought that, but I think that was the most upsetting part of the whole thing was that I, it wasn't just perplexing to me. It wasn't just you like you internalized weird. this I had idea internalized that there it. should be
0: a wage gap because it had existed for so long. I
1: think that's why the whole thing was so upsetting to me. And so I called a friend of mine and was just like really, really beside myself. And I was, I, I felt really embarrassed for some reason. I felt like somehow embarrassed that, that I because I had (laughs) really tried to negotiate, like I'd really tried to negotiate. I thought I'd kind of nailed it. And then to discover that I had like, so not nailed it. I was just like mortified. I felt embarrassed uh, about like, I I felt embarrassed that my manager knew this. You know what I mean? I felt like embarrassed, like he must think I'm such a sucker. Um, And so I called a friend of mine, And my friend was like, you shouldn't be embarrassed. He should be embarrassed.
0: Right. The shame should not be yours in a situation like this.
1: And I remember just being sort of shocked by that because, of course, he's right. You know, I I did my best with the information I had, but I just felt like such a sucker. And then he said that his mom had told him something when he, I guess, had had a sort of a similar experience where he found out a colleague was making way, way more money. And his mother said to him, the pain that you feel right now is just you waking up to your own worth. And that can be hard. And it was just like a very beautiful thing to hear at that moment that was so hard. And I was, I, I liked that idea. It felt like a, a good way to think about it, a productive way to think about it. I mean, the way that I handled that looking back with my manager was just a disaster. <laughs> I mean, I was like I'm like crying in this office and the whole thing. But... That was a really beautiful moment of that whole experience was hearing that and just thinking, oh, this isn't on me necessarily. This, like, this isn't my fault. And the fact that I'm realizing this, as painful as it was, and it was so painful, I was so mortified, is this is good. This is, like, a good thing and it hurts, like, like flossing hurts or, like, whatever, getting teeth, rotten pulled. tooth pulled hurts <laughs> right. or I don't know why I'm going in this <laughs> direction. But um, as as much as that... Pain is real, it's good. Like this is it this having this information is good and it's powerful.
0: Do you think that specific experience set you up to be more confident later to demand what you're worth, to bargain more aggressively for, you know, equal pay for doing the same job and, and that kind of thing?
1: Not that experience. If anything, that experience sort of made it more difficult. And I did get a raise after a bunch of blustering and crying and everything. Um Oh, <laughs> I really needed some Machiavelli in my life at that moment, but I did not have him. Uh, the thing that actually gave me confidence was was something I learned a little later. And I kind of happened upon it because I remember just wondering about my own productivity. And so I made a spreadsheet because it, it was a question of a raise. And I realized I produced X amount more than the year before. And I was able to use that in a negotiation to be like, I and producing X amount more than I was last year. So I was able to show like a material. I remember that was the first time that I used like data in a negotiation. And I remember the feeling of how solid I felt going into the negotiation. And I was just looking at numbers and dates and just like, this is why I should be making more money. Like, here's what I... Like, I'm producing X amount more, and I'm still making the same. And so, like, let's – and I remember just feeling so differently from, like, the going into the office and blustering and crying and it's not fair and how can you do this to me and feeling so unjust. This It was a totally different mentality. And I felt so relaxed. I felt like I just had, oh, well, this doesn't make sense. Like, look at these numbers. We should – you know, and and that negotiation was a totally different experience. So I think that was when I started to understand – what would work for me in those situations.
0: Yeah, and it reminds me of another story that you tell in the book. Um, This one, not about you, but about Google, the company, and how I can't remember if it was across all of Google or if it was just one part of Google, but for a time, they had a system where to get promoted, you essentially had to self-nominate once you thought that you had the required skills to self-nominate yourself for a promotion. And... They did some kind of a study about this because it turned out that all the men were getting promoted and the women weren't. And what was fascinating about this was that the men were all essentially putting their hands up as soon as they had like some of the required skills, like 60% of the required skills for the job they would get promoted to. The women were waiting until they had 100% of the required skills. Maybe because they're more likely to, to have, I don't know, imposter syndrome or something like that, right? But either way, there was a deep split. And so what ended up happening was that all the men were getting promoted instead. And it reminds me of the the story that you told about realizing that your colleague was getting paid so much more and waking up to your own worth because it seems like, according to this Google experiment, women are less likely to be alert to their own worth and their own qualifications to be promoted to get raises than men are. And that seems like a really deep problem, something that requires a lot of things to try to solve because it's leading to some pretty bad outcomes.
1: No, I mean, and I feel like that links even back to the the salary issue that we were talking about, about women being happier with less. Because unless you have... A really extraordinary manager who's going to be like, you should be working at this job or you should be getting paid extra. I mean, which isn't really necessarily even a fair thing to expect of a manager or company that they're going to just give you spontaneous raises and promotions, although I think it would be smart. You have to, it really all starts there, I think, of trying to kind of wake up to your own potential and worth. And that's really hard, I mean, it sounds like, oh, like, just see how worthy you are. Like, but I don't know. I mean, sh- do I have the qualifications to apply for that job? It doesn't feel like I do. Should I just apply for it? I mean, there's a real question there. So that's where I think, at least for me, getting facts is so helpful because then you can look at, OK, well, like, let's say – whenever Randy applied for that promotion, what skills did he have when he applied? And, And if you don't know, maybe talk to him and get information, get as much information as you can. And I think that is the thing, at least for me, is the most helpful because it's just hard to know. I mean, maybe I'm really not qualified for that job. Like maybe I'm really, really far away from where I need to be. I mean, that's an issue too, right? I mean, we've, I think, all talked to people who feel ready for a job that you don't think they're ready for. You know, I've talked to a lot of people in, in radio over the years who want to go here and want to go there. And a lot of them, you know, I've, I've seen both. I've seen people who don't feel like they're qualified for things they're so obviously qualified for. And I've seen people who feel very qualified for things that I did not feel they were qualified <laughs> for at all. Um, and that's and a hard it, conversation to have. Yeah. It's really hard to know the the reality of it, right? It's really hard to know. And so I think getting outside information is really useful. And, and I think There can be a fear of that because, like, what if you get the information and it's bad? Like, what if I get the information? It's like, you can't possibly take that job or you're so far away from being qualified for that job. or you'll never get it that it can be tempting just to cocoon. But I think it's better to just get as much information as you can. Like, what qualifications do people normally have when they get that job? what salary range do the normal get? How much work did I do this year? Like if I look at how much work I did the year before, am I doing the same work? Is it more advanced? And once you have those facts, I think it's just much easier. It gives you ground, you know?
0: So what do you think might be a good solution for a company that's having this problem?
1: So I think the solution, it's very unsexy, but it does come up a lot. And I do think it's probably the thing that works for companies is very similar to the, the solution for people. It's data, right? So when companies are hiring, things like taking people's names off of resumes, taking people's addresses off of resumes, it just takes out a lot of the biases that come in. I mean, we're not operating this way in a vacuum, right? Men aren't raising their hands when they're 60% or whatever qualified for a job in a vacuum. There, it's a lot of cultural reinforcement. Like, go for it. You know, there's this feeling of like, well, take a risk, jump in, go for it. And for women, it's like, well, who do you think you are? Are you sure you're ready for that? A lot of doubt. So it ends up sort of self-reinforcing. It gets reinforced from the outside and then you internalize it and then you start blaming yourself for it. So I think it's, I think the best way to kind of fresh start this kind of thing is for companies to like just be very clear about things like salary transparency. This has solved a bunch of issues like in the U.K. They started, I think they implemented it like a couple of years ago, companies that have more than 250 people have to report and make public their gender pay gap, not individual salaries, but just the number, the, pay, the percentage pay gap. So they have
0: to say women are making 85 percent of the men at this company. They'd yes. They have to report that to the public.
1: Yes. That has moved the needle amazingly, like two and a half percent or something like that in two years. We used to have the same pay gap almost as the U.K., and now they're like kind of leaving us in their dust. I think that's a real key is transparency. It's like, OK, well, what are the requirements for this job exactly? And then just be really careful about it and sort of take try to take away the sort of je ne sais quoi of hiring and promotion and make it a little more methodical. And part of me hates that. Like, I don't like the idea of sort of bureaucracy pencil pushers, like following all the rules and makes everybody crazy. But I do think a lot of discrimination and biases happens in this kind of je ne sais quoi, this fog, this like, I don't know, like, Jerry just seems ready for that job. And like, Janice just seems not ready. I think a lot of problems happen in that sort of nebulous area. And I don't think everything is quantifiable either. I mean, that's problematic too, but a lot is. So I think sort of opening this up and making as much stuff transparent and... You know, it's like you should nominate yourself for a job if you have X, Y, and Z. You should not nominate yourself for a job if you have A, B, and Z. I can't believe I actually just pounded on the table <laughs> after all the stuff I said about all the millions of things that I- I just I'd... want
0: to explain to our listeners something, <laughs> okay? Pounding on the table is like a radio or audio no-no. And we had it's this like whole discussion before we started recording I about if you such a pound right. <laughs> I should pound really on the table. I should. I'm really happy that happened, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, No. But anyway, I do think that making things more concrete is is a real solution. It's a good place to start. And then, you know, once you have a really clear outline, like if you have this skill and this skill and this skill, you should apply for a promotion. That takes care of both the very entitled, self-confident, you know, Jerry and maybe the little more shy and self-doubting Janice.
0: I like transparency as a company or a societal solution. Let's talk about some advice for individuals. What helps an individual, a specific woman going into a specific contract negotiation? She wants more money and the company might be hesitant because they're, you know, penny pinching or whatever. What is the Machiavellian advice for her going into this negotiation?
1: You make your own transparency (laughs) is the short answer. Um, You get as much information as you can. And I feel like my advice is twofold. Uh, The first big piece of advice is just homework. Get as much information as you can because that transparency, that information, those facts are so powerful. So if you find out what the salary range is for the people that you work with, which is very easy to say, not so easy to do, but I think people are quite generous about it if you ask them. And I think one good solution is just to say like, hey, I'm about to go into a salary negotiation. I'm not honestly sure what to ask for. Do you mind giving me a salary range for your job?
0: Right. Or what's a, you can even ask, what's a reasonable range to ask for if they're they're uncomfortable giving you like their specific salary or something like that. Or
1: like, what would you ask for if you were me? Yeah. You know, And, (laughs) and get that information. And then I have a friend who actually Uh, has started emailing people on LinkedIn that she doesn't know, but who work at sort of similar companies. And she said people are so responsive. She's like, I always just email white men to see what they make. And she's like, people have been so generous, so kind. They want to help. They're like, oh, my gosh, of course, this is so important. Here's Here's the salary range for my position. So you get all the salary data that you can.
0: So that your employer can't pretend that you're asking for something outlandish if you go in there and you ask for the salary that you've been sort of advised other people are actually making and they're like, "Well, that's too much. Nobody makes that." And you're like, "I asked. Like I know what people are making because they told me and this is not crazy."
1: Yes. Yes. And specifically a, a nice way to do it that's like not confrontational is just to be like, "Listen, I've done a ton of market research. I know that the salary range for a position like this is between $70 and $90,000. I looked at the work that I've been doing. I'm t- like, the, I did 20% more work this year than last year. And as it turns out, you know, I'm the most productive member of my team by far. And I should clearly be making at the top end of the salary range. I feel like I should be making $90,000. And in fact, I'm probably due for a promotion. How does that sound to you? Um, the other big piece of advice I would give is, especially for women going into a negotiation, because people can have very adverse reactions, even if they don't. Want to or mean to to women asking for more, asserting for themselves. Um, people can have very negative reactions, and that can make the negotiation less likely to be successful. So one thing that I recommend is to to avoid getting into a situation where it feels zero sum, gamey, where and antagonistic. In other words, like you'd better pay me fifteen thousand more dollars, or I'm walking. Uh, instead, it's like, listen, I love working here. I'm so excited for the future of the work that I've been doing. I feel really good about it. I see myself going here and here, and I love that this company is going in X, Y, and Z direction. I really want to be a part of that. I'm so excited and inspired. I've been doing, in the last year, my work has really transformed. I've gone from X to Y to Z, and I'm really excited about my future here. I do feel like my salary and title are no longer reflective of the work that I'm doing here, and I really want to feel valued here and that you're as excited about my future here as I am. Um, here's what I think I am the level I think I'm working at now would warrant X salary and Y title. What do you think? And so you're talking about a future together. And it's not just like pay me this or else. And I actually think that's a better negotiating tactic for everyone, because at least for me. I have always felt sort of a high noon standoffy feeling around (laughs) negotiations. And this feels nicer. It's like you are supposed to be building a future at this company. This company is supposed to be giving you something and you're giving them something. And ideally, it is a relationship. It's not a battle. So to present it that way feels more productive. And then you're telling them where you want to go and the parts of the company you're excited about and your vision for yourself going forward. And that's information that is useful and good for them to have. And you're telling them what they need to give you to make you happy. They cannot do it, but that's okay. Then there are ways around that too. But you're at least, that's a lot of good information that it's good for them to have. So like, okay, we really, like, we really love Cardiff. We really want to keep him. We know he's interested in working on environmental law cases. Oh, we should put him on that case, you know? So they know. So you're giving them information that they can start to help make you happy too,
0: So it's collaborative rather than confrontational. Yeah. And it's future-oriented rather than saying, I deserve this money because of the work I have done. You're saying, here's what I'm going to be doing for you in the future and pay me to, like, clear the deck on that so that we're all happy because I'll do this great work for you and also I'll feel like I'm being justly compensated for that work. Yeah. Okay. I like that. I like that. Um, In terms of who throws out the first number... Do you go in there and you're like, I want $100,000? Or do you say, no, 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 no. I want to know what you plan to pay me, employer. Uh, Who goes first and why?
1: That is a great question. So this, I thought I knew the answer to this question going in, and I don't know what to think now. So conventional wisdom is you do not name the number. The person who names the number first loses because they've shown their hand essentially. Right. And you don't want to say, well, I want to be paid $60,000. If really they were just about to offer you $85,000 and then.
0: Then you screw yourself.
1: Then you screw yourself because, you know, it's the transparency issue. Like whoever is hiding the most information, it's whatever information asymmetry. Right. You don't want to end up in a situation where you've shown your hand and they don't.
0: And also a lot of people I know are worried that if they throw out a number first and it's too high, that the employer will just pull the offer, if it's a job offer, yes. or they'll consider it so ridiculous that like the whole thing becomes unrealistic and it leads to a rupture before you've started what you had hoped would be a negotiation. Right. So it's like you might start way too low and screw yourself, but you're worried that if you start too high, you're going to end up like completely like screwing like, up the what relationship. What is wrong with right? this guy? That like, I'm so, yeah. where do
1: you think we are? I yeah. know the information that I got I mean, basically, it, it depends on the amount of information that you're able to get. One thing that happens to women a lot is lowballing, so that is a pretty strong argument in favor of naming a number. It's called anchoring in negotiation. You anchor the discussion. So let's say, let's say the salary that you want is seventy thousand dollars, and that's what you know that they pay around that, and they offer you fifty. What do you do? You have to, it takes a lot of energy to get out from that. There are a lot of feelings that come up and things like that. Women get lowballed a lot. So then
0: the company has anchored the conversation instead the company, of you. Yes. And it's starting at 50. So then if you say 70, it's like, well, we'll give you 60. And it's like, well, you're still being underpaid.
1: You're still being underpaid, and you've had this weird argument. It's sort of like a shot across the bow, like, I've done my research, don't even try it. You know what I mean? It's like here, like I know what this job pays because women can often get messed with so much in terms of salary. So, that is actually a pretty good argument for naming a number. When you don't want to name it is if you're just your homework hasn't panned out at all. I mean, there are different ways to come back from being lowballed. I named a bunch of them in the book because it is a thing that happens to women so often, but I would say if you're able to get information contrary to like every negotiation book written, I would say name a number. Yeah. Um, do Go it. first. Go first. Because I think the low-balling thing happens so much. I mean, by the way, never. One thing that happens a lot is when they ask you what you made in your last job never like, actually, I had to take this out of the book because the lawyer at Simon and Schuster was like, you can't say this. It's unethical. But I'll say it to you, Cardiff. OK, <laughs> Um I was like, you should lie if they ask you how much. Oh, you, I, here, you But just, I
0: agree 100 percent.
1: Yeah. And, and, and she I was don't like, think it's unethical. She's like, you can't. And I was just like, I had a whole thing where I was like, lie, like, you know, it's your job.
0: I think it's unethical for a company to ask you that question in the first place. And in my opinion, the reason a company asks you that question is because they're planning to lie about what they can afford. So if they ask you, what did you make at your last job? And you lie and say, you give yourself a 20% retroactive (laughs) raise or something, right? You're basically offsetting their lie with one of your own. It's like two wrongs
1: make a right theory of negotiating.
0: But to me, like like, it's, complete horseshit for them to ask you that question in the first place. It's Can wrong. Can you swear
1: on your podcast? Yeah.
0: Really? Yeah. Is yeah, there going to be a, an explicit not like bar? A lot? Like, we try to keep it to a minimum, but you know. It's still a little uh, thrilling. I have to <laughs> yeah. say, I got a little charge. I'm like, oh my God. In emotional settings, like, yeah, I think it's okay to let one fly. If it's authentic, it's one of our authentic selves. Yes, that's true. There. there
1: you go. There you go. <laughs>
0: Um, But that's what I believe. I think it's wrong for a prospective employer to ask you that question. It's offensive, in my opinion, for them to ask you that question. I've never not been asked that question. I I probably should think more carefully about whether or not I should be advising people to lie in a setting like that. I think you should lie. But, like, I'm sort of leaning in that direction. I think it's wrong to be asked. So at that point, you're in a purely Machiavellian world where there is no more right and wrong because that's been breached. It's been transcended. And so now it's like... Now it's the Wild West.
1: Oh, yeah. Know? Now the gloves are off. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Well, the official advice I give in the book, which I think is reasonable if you do not feel comfortable lying, is you can just say, you know, listen, they pay me really well, but I really would love to focus on this job. You know, they pay me really well. I'm very happy with my salary there. So you're kind of being like, oh, I'm making bank. Yeah, just be like, listen, they pay me really well. I'm really happy with my salary there, but I'd love to talk about this. It's a different job, and I'd love to talk about this job and, and my salary here.
0: Yeah. That makes more sense.
1: But yeah, no, the I I got into a little tangle with the the lawyer at the publisher. Oh right, yeah.
0: Well, hey, but, lawyer, if you're listening to this, you know she when she said like, are you really now, telling so people up? to
1: lie? I was like, well, Machiavelli would.
0: But then, <laughs> you know, I think they were worried that it's
1: like advising people to lie, and I do understand that.
0: Yeah, fair enough, I guess.
1: Machiavelli would be lawyers. like, "What is the problem? Of course you lie. Of course you lie."
0: <laughs> Boo, lawyers. Unless they're, like, you know, friends of ours who are lawyers.
1: Unless they're friends of ours who are lawyers, in which case, yay, lawyers!
0: (laughs) Uh, Executive producer Amy Keene married to a lawyer. so uh, Yay, lawyer! lawyer.
1: Yeah. Yay, Amy's (laughs) husband. He's going to be
0: psyched. Osahan, what's up? Shout out. Um, (laughs) Should we go get a drink?
1: Yes, please.
0: (laughs) Thanks for being here.
1: (laughs) Yes, thanks for having me.
0: The book is Machiavelli for Women, Defend Your Worth, Grow Your Ambition, and Win the Workplace. Bye, my friend, Stacey Vanek-Smith. And that's our show for this week. You can find links to Stacy's book in the show notes for this episode. And we'll also post a link to the podcast that Stacey hosts, The Indicator from Planet Money. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and our amazing executive producer, Amy Keen. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks also to Adrian Lilly, our excellent sound engineer. Our terrific theme music that you're listening to now is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or tell a friend. It really is the best way for people to find out about us. And we see them all, by the way, all the reviews, all the ratings, and we really appreciate them, just like we see every email we get. Speaking of which, you can email us at hello at bizarraudio.com. That's hello at B-A-Z-A-A-R-A-U-D-I-O.com. And I am also active, or at least active-ish, on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia. So hit us up if you want, and hopefully we'll see you next week.